0: At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits.
1: Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what?
0: But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people, all working toward the ultimate goal. Best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit.
2: You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.
1: If I were looking for a white rabbit,
2: I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay,
1: rabbit, you forced me to use force! Why do you sell me by a rabbit instead?
2: I imagine right now you're feeling a bit like alice tumbling down the rabbit hole
0: hello and welcome back to best in show the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and show kv industry I am your host, Bryony Smith, and as every week, I'm joined by our my other host, the suave debonair and stylish Alan Massick. Alan, how are things going on your side of the country?
1: My gosh, how I've missed those compliments every week. Well, thank you. Um, everything's great. You know, it's good to see everyone excited about the podcast again as we dive into season two. And uh, it's warm here. I hear it's warm there. But uh, I also want to ask you about uh, your affinity for snow, because I believe the Midwest has not been so warm lately.
0: Uh, yeah, last week we got a snowstorm that came in Tuesday night to Wednesday most everyone was out of school Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. It was delightful. I got my car stuck in the snow twice on Thursday, which I haven't done for a very long time, but I did get a good laugh remembering the last time that that happened.
1: Ugh, it was... I think the, the only good thing about snow is snow, our snow days, and we don't get those anymore, so getting stuck, that's, that's not fun.
0: Yeah, and some poor kids in some districts around here where they'd already closed for COVID, they didn't get a snow day, they just got a virtual school day. And I'm like, oh, oh man, that's not fair. <laughs>
1: COVID snow days, yeah, not they don't go hand in hand, do they?
0: They do not.
1: Ugh, poor but
0: kids. But yeah, so after getting towed out of the snow this time, um, the last time I did was probably the most sitcom-worthy moment of my life, and it's actually a rabbit show story. My club, the Sunflower Rabbit Club, used to have what we called fun shows in January. Basically, the premise was we'll get a building that's cheap. We'll get the ARBA sanction. If people want breed sanctions, they can. That way, if the weather just wipes out the show, the club was not that much money. We did that for a few years. And it kind of evolved into a thing where there was a theme and there was, you know, some extra like dress up contests and things like that. So they encouraged people to dress up. So one of the last ones they did, this had to be like 2008 or 9, the theme was Pirates. I think Pirates of the Caribbean was still in the theaters. So I was judging. They encouraged everyone to dress up, but I'm like, sure. So I had all sorts of fun with it. I put probably a bottle of salt spray in my hair and like section it off and twist it up to make like some faux dreads and like braided some sections and put all this stuff in it and, you know, put on a headscarf and a bunch of black eyeliner and, you know, kind of look like Jack Sparrow's little sister, like another skull scarf around my waist, like a button down shirt and, you know, some boots and jeans. And it snowed the night before, but it didn't look so bad. So I was at my parents' house loading up and went to back out and I got my SUV stuck. It was like seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. I didn't want to bother my parents. They're getting ready for church. So I call AAA, the tow truck comes out and I go back inside and they're griping at me. We could have gotten you out. So anyway, a cardinal sin in, in my life is like bothering people when I can take care of things myself. So I'm just kind of like, yeah, whatever. So the tow truck comes and I jump out of the car in this pirate costume at like eight o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and they send their little pickup in to get me. Well, that gets stuck. They winch that out and then they pull me out. And at the end they're like, Are you going to a costume party? <laughs> and I said, No, I'm going to Judge a Rabbit Show. <laughs> I mean, if I'd been like wittier, I was like irritated and running behind. I would have, you know, been like, Arr me ship, she's run aground. <laughs> but I wasn't that witty at that point in time. But it gets even better. This was, you know, over ten years ago. A couple years ago in the summer, I think my mom locked her keys out of her car. Anyway, the same company came out to their house. And the guy said, I think we've been here before. I seem to remember pulling somebody out of the snow in a pirate costume on a Sunday morning. And my mom's like, yeah, that was my daughter.
1: Oh, my God. So but I'm surprised you didn't say, I, I think we picked up a homeless lady in the snow one day, and we couldn't find her shopping cart, and she was a little late to the soup kitchen. <laughs> right. I, I'm trying to imagine this. I'm not seeing a pirate by how you described it, but I'm sure it was fabulous.
0: Yeah, I, it was It was a pretty good pirate costume. I mean, when I get into costume, I get into costume. But, <laughs> but yeah, so there we are, pulled out of the snow and wearing a pirate costume.
1: I love it. And they still remember it. They still talk about it to this day.
0: I mean, can you imagine, like of all the things you show up to, You're usually not finding a pirate stuck in the snow. No, not in
1: January. I mean, like you said, this is a Halloween thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Sunday morning in January.
1: Oh, rabbit shows. But yes, it's
0: melting off and now we've got mud. So, hey, it's a trade-off.
1: It is a trade-off, but maybe spring is coming. I don't know. I'm coming to Kansas uh, this weekend, actually, and I'm looking forward to it. And I hope that it doesn't snow, but it looks like it's not going to be too bad.
0: No, it shouldn't. And just like last year, that show ended up getting canceled anyway. You're coming to Kansas, and you didn't tell me about it in time, so Oops. I took another show.
1: Yeah, coming to Kansas, and you're not going to be in town.
0: Yeah, in to my now. hometown and my fairground. I know, right?
1: I will pay homage. <laughs> don't worry. I will. I will go to the very spot where that, where that little girl and her little Dutch fell in love <laughs> and bow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Pick a dandelion and lay it down or something.
1: And not in January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> you never know. It's Kansas. Like, like, keep going. You might find one. Oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> All right. So what do you have in store for us today when it comes to history?
0: So I have in my freshly washed little hands a copy of the 1986 through 1990 standard that belonged to Fibber McGeehee.
1: Ooh, cool stuff.
0: I know. This and how is did the... you come
1: across this? Come on.
0: Well, our friend Deb Morrison loaned me um, a box full of some historical things that she had that came from Fibber. So I actually have Fibber's copy that's hardbound and Texas copy that's paperback. So I know I feel like I need to like put on gloves to touch these. I'm a librarian's kid. Um, but no, it, I chose this year because Deb first joined the ARBA in 1988. And that was kind of a benchmark year for accepting new breeds in the ARBA. Do you know... Which four came in that year? There were four? There were four.
1: Oh man, now it's my turn to be quizzed. All right, I do know a couple because my first breed was one of them. That was the American Fuzzy Lop. Right? Uh-huh. Okay. Jersey Woolly? Uh-huh. Giant Angora. Yes. Oh man. This other one, that fourth? I I'm gonna make a guess. Uh satin angora?
0: You're gonna kick yourself.
1: Oh no, what is it?
0: Mini Rex. Mini Rex, eighty <laughs> eight. Yeah. I thought they were already around. My gosh. Yeah. Man. So, I mean, think about this. It took from 1988, it was 2005 until we got another new breed in.
1: Yeah. That's a long that was, time.
0: That was how long it took. But you got, again, giant Angoras. Originally, they came in in blue-eyed white and ruby-eyed white.
1: I did not know American
0: that. American Fuzzy Lops. Uh-huh. And solid and broken, all of these colors. Jersey Woolies, which at the time came in in colored and white. Again, all these colors. Mini Minirex in several colors. And as you can imagine, I think people are kind of collecting their pearls after that. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. was a whole lot of new. So interestingly enough, in this standard, this was published in 1986. It included some working standards for these breeds. Actually, the Satin Angora Working Standard is in here. They were accepted in 1987. The Otter Rex working standard is in here. It says that their final showing was 1986. I believe this was probably the first Otter color that came in because in this standard, there's no Otter Netherland Dwarf either.
1: Interesting. And back then when Rex recognized Otter, they only came in two versions, right? One. Oh,
0: really? Just black? Yes, just black Otter.
1: Very interesting.
0: It's been within the past 15 years that the other three colors came in.
1: Wow. And now you don't even think about, when you think about otter, you think about all four. You don't even think about just one version, except in the Britannia Petite, which still today only has one recognized version. I know there's some CODs out on the rest, correct?
0: That is correct. Awesome. But yes, Rex were only accepted in Black Otter until then. Oddly enough, there's this little pocket of chocolate otters in El Dorado, Kansas, owned by my vet's kids.
1: Just by chance?
0: Yeah, pretty much. They didn't really know what color it was. They pretty much just showed rabbits in 4-H. And I'm like, oh, that's a chocolate otter. And they're like, really? Yeah, oh, nobody really has that. But
1: <laughs> Yeah, cool.
0: The Jersey Woolly working standard was in here. It's noted that the final showing was 1986, if accepted. It took another couple of years for that. The standard is like it's bullet points. <laughs> There's hardly anything to this. The body standard, I'll read you that. Points 15, short-coupled, compact body with good depth and well-rounded hips.
1: That's pretty basic.
0: That's very basic. Um, head, points 15, bold, well-rounded head, which may have some side trimmings. DQ for heavy side trimmings or heavy bangs resembling English Angora furnishings.
1: And no mention of headset in that standard?
0: Oh, no. Nothing had a high oh, no. at this point. <laughs> oh, no.
1: Oh, no. That took 30 years to sort that out, so <laughs> you know how that went.
0: Ears actually have more text than any other area in this standard. It says short, substantial, erect ears, not necessarily touching. Well-furred and may have small tufts at the ends, but not to have large tufts or tassels. Ideal length of ears, two and a half inches. DQ for heavy tassels on ears or ears over three inches.
1: Okay. That's a lot. That's a lot of words compared to a very minimal body standard.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And then we get into wool. Density, 20 points. The greatest density possible is desired all over the animal. This should be determined by feeling as well as by blowing into the wool. Texture, points 10, to be full of life with generous interspersion of guard hairs.
1: Well, that's changed.
0: Very much so. (laughs) Length to be uniform all over the body. Minimum length, one inch. Ideal length, two to three inches. Evenness of growth to give a smooth outline is important. Again, that's changed. (laughs) dq for wool shorter than one inch in length
1: yeah okay what did fuzzy Lop say for a minimum wool length back then
0: um that is not included in this um so i'm guessing that see the process was at this point and i looked at that too that presentations began at the convention after the breeder sponsor notified the standards chair that they had a new breed so probably sometime during 1986, because the standard would have been published, obviously late 1985, somebody wrote in and said, hey, I got this thing called American Fuzzy Lops. And it sounds like they probably presented in 86, 87 and 88. That's just my guess, you know, seeing what was published in here. Um, but yes, there was no waiting period back then.
1: Wow. You could just come up with something brand new and, and bring it straight on to the convention.
0: Yes, um, there were three showings and the process stated the breeder sponsors will make the following three consecutive annual convention showings, starting with the annual convention immediately following the writing to the standards committee chairman, advising that he or she has a breed worthy of recognition. So I suppose someone could have been like, you know, in July of 1986, been like, hey, I got this thing called American fuzzy lop. I'm going to bring it to convention. Y'all cool with that?
1: Um, <laughs> I, I bet you're a little bit happy that that's no longer the case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, <laughs> yeah, even in this day and age when I think it is much easier for people to collaborate cross country and, you know, even in closer um, circumstances to work on these breeds and varieties, that waiting period really gives people time to think about what they're going to do to get other people interested, to make sure that they do have animals that are ready for presentation, to get them out, to get them on exhibition tables evaluated, to get feedback and things like that. I think that that's, you know, really helpful.
1: Oh, totally. And, and for you to go through like the, the you know, we all have that like, oh, my gosh, can't wait to make this project. And then you go, was this really a good idea? You know, yeah. Today's, today allows us to, you know, reflect and, and have some, you know. Be a little more thoughtful about it.
0: Right. And how many times have we, I mean, even in these long established breeds and varieties where we have plenty of cages to work with, have we thought, I had all does this year. I had all bucks this year. You know, I don't have a good buck to take to convention. Uh, You know, that that happens to all of us a lot. And I mean, I know I thought about that the first time I went through and evaluated presentations. I thought, you know, if I had to present Blue Dutch this year... I don't know that I would have been able to do that because I didn't get a buck that I liked.
1: Exactly. And uh, you just have to you have to pull one out of thin air, apparently. It's it's not easy and you've got to have a lot of cages dedicated to it.
0: Yes, you do. So interesting how the process has changed. And I've been told anecdotally, well, I know I know I was told by Tex that when he was appointed as chair of the standards Committee in nineteen ninety one, he said that he was given the mandate by the board to kind of tighten things up a little bit. And so the process did become more stringent. There was more documentation required. And, um, you know, at that time, it was probably the right thing to do because we did have a lot of stuff coming in. You know, it was really just changing the culture of breeding rabbits. That was kind of that when that shift from commercial to fancy was really tipping the balance there.
1: Absolutely, And that's um, when we first see, you know. Fancier breeds winning best in shows at conventions, for example, the the uh, the New Zealand White era was was coming to its close.
0: Yeah, um, so I can see definitely why people would have wanted to kind of slow that roll a little bit. Um, but time changed, things change. Um, at that time, numbers were booming, conventions were growing, and and we're in a different time now. Um, you know, a lot of people can't keep rabbits in the backyard like they used to land is more expensive. Um, it's harder to get your kids out of school to take them to shows. So it's an interesting and fascinating example of, you know, just the ebbs and flows in the hobby and society and how we've been responded to those over the years.
1: You got it. We definitely have our own culture. Yes, we do. All right, well, we want to remind everyone that uh, The Rabbit Tree will continue to serve as our hub on Facebook for the podcast, Best in Show. And like, follow, and please do share it so that all of our friends from across the world, whether they're showing rabbits or cavies, can follow us and look for current and past episodes and lots more to come. And don't forget to subscribe to Best in Show on whichever platform you may listen to podcasts. That may be on Apple, Audible, Spotify, or Google, and your five-star ratings and comments mean the world to us. We totally find them. We read them, share them with you, and it makes all of what we do so much more fulfilling to know that everyone's excited about the podcast. And I'm going to read a podcast comment that came to us on Apple. It comes from barton 6 Rabbitry. Um, he writes, my wife and I are new to rabbits and raising rabbits. We've learned so much from this podcast. Thank you y'all for what you do. So thank you, Barton six rabbitry for your comment. And we want to remind everyone that you can drop those comments and five-star ratings on whichever platform you listen to us. And you can also email us and that may be comments and suggestions for future episodes. You can find both Bryony and I at podcast best at gmail.com again, podcast best at gmail.com.
0: I don't know about you, but one of my favorite parts of every day is sitting down after all of the feeding is done, all of the rabbits are watered, and just listening to them munch on their food, watching litters bounce around the cage, and seeing the hopefulness and contentedness of all of my animals.
1: Yes, Barney, that's a rabbit keeper's sign of peace and tranquility, clean rows of cages full of happy rabbits. Of course, having well-designed cages makes a huge difference. I don't think there's a rabbit raiser alive that doesn't yearn to have a rabbitry full of KW Advanced Design cages, feeders, and nest boxes. The little blue nameplate with a KW Bunny logo is how I always can tell those that take care of their animals and take care of them very seriously. These are the highest quality cages you can get. They've been around since I was a kid. Well, for 45 years, KW Cages has always led the most innovative designs and highest quality hand craftsmanship. Right now, if you order from kwcages.com and use the promo code The Rabbitry, you can save $10 off any order over $75. So don't forget, use that promo code The Rabbit Tree on KW and get your orders in. In this episode, we are going to interview Deb Morrison from SkyTuke, Oklahoma. She's been an ARBA member since 1988 and a dedicated machine behind local, state, and national clubs, including Secretary-Treasurer of the Tulsa RBA, Secretary and Rabbit Coordinator for the Tulsa County 4-H shows, Secretary for the Tulsa State Fair. She's the former Palomino Co-Breeders Association Director, Vice President, and Secretary. Currently, she's serving as President of the Havana Rabbit Breeders Association. In 2021, Deb earned ARBA Master Exhibitor. Master breeder and is the eighth awarded Supreme Master Breeder for her Havanas in the ARBA. Also in 2021, she was awarded the President's Award of Excellence by Dr. Hayhow, our president, at the ARBA convention. She raised Palominos from 1987 to 2013 and since 2006 has raised very successfully Havanas. Deb is currently serving her third term as the ARBA District 4 Director. Deb, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Alan. It's great to be with you.
1: It's great to be with you. We had a chat there in Louisville at the convention, and you are one of our our biggest fans from the from the start and we want to thank you for all of your promotion of the podcast and your and your your constant listening. We totally appreciate uh your opinion and and your voice
2: well i I thoroughly have enjoyed them and keeping my phone in my pocket and getting some chores done and I actually got about almost uh, 2,000 daffodil bulbs transplanted over where they needed to be while listening to several of the podcasts. (laughs) So it it helped me get some work done.
1: Well, we are honored. I have to say, I listen to podcasts too when I travel. And like yesterday, I drove from uh, the KW factory in San Diego home and it's about an eight hour drive. And suddenly I realized I was in Fresno, which is my home city because I was listening to other podcasts. So they, they definitely helped to take away some of that, that long, that long time that, on, on things that maybe aren't so enjoyable. So yes, definitely. All right. So tell us, how did you get started in rabbit?
2: Well, uh, when I was um, a child, I guess probably fourth or fifth grade, my uh, dad had brought some rabbits home for us to start raising meat rabbits, and we did that all through junior high and high school, and um, and then I'd even at the very beginning thought that they were just the most beautiful things in the whole wide world. And, and I asked him about if I could show them at the county fair, if they had a rabbit show. And I don't know whether he checked into that or not, but as it turned out, um, you know, I didn't get into showing at that time. That would have been the mid-70s or something. And so, um So then I got married in in 1986, and a year or two later, I was looking for something to do that I could stay home and possibly make some money, and so the subject came up of, you know, possibly raising some fryer rabbits, and so um, then uh, in the process of looking for them rabbits, uh, my younger sister, who was in FFA, was showing at the local Tulsa County show, and my husband and I went down there to see what was going on and um, this one rabbit had the ribbon on its cage that said grand champion and and so he my husband who is a strawberry blonde he said well you know why that one don't you and I said I don't who knows what, how, why rabbit won and and he said because it's got the same color hair as me and as <laughs> it turned out it was a palomino and so wow. uh, within about a month later i uh, was looking through the newspaper the tulsa newspaper ads for rabbits for sale to have these uh you know get some fryer rabbits new zealand's or californians and uh and i happened to call a lady by the name of sharon pelham and uh, went out to her house right before Christmas to pick up some some fryer rabbits. And lo and behold, when I got there, she had these palomino rabbits. And so as a joke for my husband for Christmas, I got him a pair of palomino rabbits to go along with my fryer rabbits. And uh, uh, their names were David and Ruby. And um, that buck David was kind of the background eventually of what I did and the success I had with when I got into showing and then went into showing the Lynx variety.
1: That's pretty cool stuff. Was uh, Oklahoma known for Palominos at the time? I know Sharon was there and she's a a really a pr- pretty famous palomino breeder, right?
2: yes, yeah, well, yes, she is a very famous palomino breeder um still showing palominos, um but not so much, but you know the palominos are one of those breeds that's currently on the rare breeds list, and so um she she would show, and I would show and and we kind of just had the mentality of it at the time, I got to where I was only breeding palominos for convention and spring nationals, just to be sure that there was plenty of competition. Um, You know, after a while, when you're showing rabbits against yourself and they're the only ones at a show, then that kind of gets old. And so uh, I could save a whole lot of money staying (laughs) in my own barn. So, um, But in the mid-90s, we did have several other competitors that were um, we even started a specialty show club here in Oklahoma and maybe held a national one time but uh, that only lasted for three or four years and so uh, now again there's not that many palominos here in Oklahoma anymore.
1: Interesting. Well, and um, we're going to talk about Palomino's a little bit later and also uh, about taking on those rarer breeds. So uh, I've got some questions for you there. But okay. um, ba- back to your beginning, who were some of your mentors uh, in rabbits at that time in the 80s?
2: Well, Sharon was, uh, of course, with the Palomino's. And then, of course, the great one, Fever McGee, he uh, lived, uh, he lived about 20, 25 miles from me. And of course, I would, you know, he was the president of our Tulsa RBA club at the time. And, um, uh, man, he brought in some of the greats as far as judges and others, uh, you know, coming around, Tex Thomas and Connell Addison and, uh, you know, some of the, the names that are just, you know, the greats in, in our um, in our industry. And so Fibber was a bit big influence as far as you know um we would even have a toss rba meeting uh in august at his house that we call had the watermelon uh bash kind of thing and then he would let everybody come in his barn and look at his rabbits and you know that kind of thing and so um he was a great mentor as far as learning uh, you know, you can't have as much uh, money in the bank as what you need for depth over, you know, with a rabbit that's going to have nice depth. And so um, it's like having too much money in the bank, I guess is what he used to say. And so um, they were some and then, um, you know, just other uh breeders there was a couple old-timers that were down in texas that were that i had got some of my other starts from in palominos and so um but locally it was mainly just sharon and and fibra
1: did you know uh back then when you got your start and fibra was involved and you were going to those local shows and and part of the local club did you have any idea exactly how celebrated fibra was in, in the entire industry
2: um, yes, because he was, um, you know, at that time, and we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s, he was really kind of hitting on all cylinders and winning those best in shows with mini recs at convention with his Florida whites, you know, and, and that and uh, that's, you know, at the time when I started, mini-recs weren't even an approved breed. And so, you know, I remember him talking to people and helping them out that were um, getting them started and stuff. But, um, you know, I always kind of equated to him. I mean, he was just the nicest guy in the whole wide world. Uh, but, you know, he he was one of the best. and uh, But it was like, you know, having Andy Griffith Around, you know, and stuff. Uh, If you needed help, he was willing to help you if uh, whatever needed to be done. I mean, he was just a great guy and, um, you know, enjoyed uh, seeing other people doing well with their showing. Um, of course, he never showed at the local shows around here. He only uh, concentrated on convention and um, I don't even know if he, sh- he showed at any of their their spring nationals either. so um, he kind of let the rest of us just common folk, just kind of have <laughs> enjoy our shows and hmm. and uh, he never he never would bring any of his stuff out just for a regular show.
1: What was it like to to walk into his barn? Because uh, it's something I, I dream about, but never had the opportunity. I, oh, I didn't really know Fibber that well.
2: Yes, um, it's a um, you're kind of in awe, you know, to see you know, and it's almost like everything looked like uh, white cookie cutter rabbits. Um, I never was in the Mini Rex barn, but the, in the Florida White barn. Um, They all looked exactly the same. I think one thing that kind of took me back is that he would have, uh, even the New Zealands, they would have babies on them that were about the same size as the mother, you know, in the Florida whites and stuff. And so um, it it just was a, a, you know, kind of an honor to be there. But he'd get rabbits out. Put them up on the grooming table and let you get your hands on them and, you know, look at them and, uh, you know, even give you pointers on, you know, posing and handling and and that kind of stuff, too. Do you miss him? Oh, greatly, greatly. Um, (laughs) uh, A a few years back, or it may have been, you know, after I would got... appointed as district director i had some a friend come up and and told me they said they would really be proud of you <laughs> and so it, it would be a great honor to uh you know have him know <laughs> what i've done
1: he was a big influence on you i'm sure yes and, uh, definitely I think he's at all those conventions watching all of us going out. I would have had one this year if I was still there.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I left that one at home. But no, if he knew when he had a good one, it wasn't going to stay at home. <laughs> so I
1: remember the last time I saw him, I think it was in 09 at the convention. I remember he he said to someone, he said, you know, he was showing. He said, oh, I, I, I've still got one in me. You know, yeah. I, think he, I think he died shortly thereafter. Was
2: Yeah, I believe it son. was in December of that year is when he passed away.
1: Yeah, the most celebrated breeder of, of our industry to date with four best in shows at the ARBA convention is just right. a remarkable feat for, for any yes. breeder. We can, only, mm-hmm. we can barely dream of getting out of variety sometimes yeah. out, out of <laughs> a class for that. Right. So, so you are our uh, ARBA district four director. Um, yes. You want to tell us a little bit about, about your district because it's it's geographically an interesting one as well. Um, introduce us uh, to that part of the country.
2: Yes, as District Four director, I um, have Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, New Mexico, and Colorado are all included in my states or in my and district.
1: That's a pretty big drive from if from one from the west to the east or the east to the west. Arkansas all the way to New Mexico. That's, that's a lot of terrain.
2: Oh sure, yes. Well, I mean, you can drive for ten or twelve hours and never even be out of the state of Texas. So, um, you know, that that alone covers a lot of ground.
1: When you um, decided to run for District 4 director, uh, what were some of your goals uh, early on? And what have you accomplished in your in your time there as director?
2: Well, my goals were, you know, after I don't know how many I've been, you know, in maybe 20 or 30 years showing that just to give back to the hobby, Um, you know, to represent those in in my district and um, let them have a voice and uh, represent them at the, uh, you know, executive board level. And, uh, And I've, you know, over the years contacted many to get you know, wise counsel from, from different ones that have been in this hobby, uh, you know, even longer than I have. Um, so, um, and, uh, you know, a shout out to my state reps who always, uh, I'm going to be very sarcastic and say get me in trouble because they represent at the state level, so good that my article in the Domestic Rabbit magazine often is way, way, way long. And uh, Sandra White gives me a little bit of hard time, hard time about that. So, uh, But people are ready to report what's going on in their states, and I give them the opportunity to, to have that voice.
1: And I'm going to commend you. I'm going to second that, that statement. I was reading your latest uh, column for your direct report in the domestic rabbits, and I think it—I think it has uh, your words on about four or five different pages. It's—it's it's pretty spread out. And what I love about it is that, as you just said, you have people from your state reps from all of your um, states writing in and and chiming in and telling everyone what's going on in their state. You know, it shows that maybe you couldn't otherwise get to.
2: Right. Yeah. And I, I greatly appreciate them. They're, they're uh, some of the best. And um, I always give them a, you know, about a week uh, notice before my article is due and anybody that has information coming up or things they want to put in, they can get that to me so I can include it in my, uh, in my article. And so, you know, a lot of times I don't have a lot of things personally that I have to write about, and it's, uh, but it's all about those other states that are included in our district.
1: Yeah, you've got a, a lot of a lot of great words in there and uh, a lot of photos in this in this issue as well. You're always including more than just than just text to to highlight your district and and tell people from around the country what's going on. And of course, to inform those within your district uh, what's going on. So, right. Yeah. Uh,
2: you've
1: done a great job as director. We're certainly going to miss you. You're uh, you're currently in your third term. And as we know, ARBA directors can serve a total of three terms, uh, consecutive terms, that is. Yes. And um, so you just began, in fact, your third term. So we've got to you until, was it August or September of 2023?
2: Yes, yes. I, I believe September 15th is when the, the new officers come on. And that gives them a little bit of a, a lead time to, uh, uh, you know, prepare for getting to the convention and, and everything they need for that meetings that are held at convention.
1: And, you know, you're not a, an ARBA judge and that's... Got- probably serves as a bit of a challenge for you because a lot of directors are judges and they're judging within the district that they serve so you know they're they're basically given a stipend or some pay to get there. Um, this has been on you pretty much to to serve your district and to travel around. And I I travel to the South a lot to judge. And I'll be surprised sometimes you're there. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you put on some miles. You want to talk about some of your favorite trips and longest trips uh, to, well, to meet those yeah.
2: people? Yes. And, and I do. I enjoy traveling. And of course, I'm showing and, you know, uh occasionally, you know, have rabbits that people know I'm traveling to that part of the country, you know, contact me prior to maybe deliver rabbits for them, uh, you know, from my barn or um, you know, something that they've been waiting on. So uh but it but it is a, a bit of a financial burden. But again, I'm I'm honored to you know, reach out to different states and, you know, go up there um, and, you know, even make it a few trips uh, a, several times a year, sometimes even up into Kansas and uh, which I've got to drive through that district just to get to my district in Colorado. But, uh, but the Colorado trips are, are great. Uh, I enjoy the shows up there and the, the weather's always just been gorgeous, Uh, perfect rabbit weather, you know, on the little bit on the cooler side for uh, early summer, late spring kind of thing. And, uh, you know, there's so many beautiful places up there, you know, to see and stuff. And so, um, but, uh, you know, some of the favorite things traveling is when uh, somebody has put some work into the application to, uh, and sends the, the uh, information in to maybe have a distinguished service award for somebody in their area, and then I get to, you know, be part of that and be part of the surprise of, you know, delivering and announcing uh, those awards sometimes. And, and I've, I've done a couple uh, up in Colorado and uh, and some in Texas also um, on that. So um, that makes it fun. It kind of a dual purpose.
1: Yeah, it's got to be one of the highlights of your of your time there as director. And I bet you've met a lot of new people that maybe were doing rabbits as long as you, but you never crossed paths until you were in that position as director. Would would you say that was true?
2: Yes. Yeah, definitely. Oh, sorry. Hey, Um they uh you know one of them has been Melissa McGee uh, out from mountain California, and I met her out in new New Mexico at a show when she was running for District Two office the same year I was uh, running for my first uh, district four office and uh, and and put a lot of names to faces and um, and then you know its it 's amazing the people that that you see at convention that they see your face and and uh, you know how they know you uh from you know seeing you on the in the DR magazine or um you know the website and that kind of thing. And so you realize that you have a a broader area of people that that know who you are. And uh you know it, it sure makes you want to appreciate those and uh be be you know cognizant of their input into our hobby too.
1: Absolutely. We're all one big family, as we like to say, right?
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: And um, I'm sure you've met people in in the ARBA that you didn't know that maybe are serving on the board with you. Um, has has that been a great experience to, to, to learn about the other parts of the, the country from those voices that also represent as directors?
2: Yes. And, and you know, one of the things after my my very first uh, the first year I was on was the convention was in Indianapolis. And, um, you know, at that time, we had scheduled two days of 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. board meetings before the convention even starts. And that's kind of can be a daunting schedule, although we get many breaks and a lunch break and a, and a dinner break and, uh you know, that kind of thing. But on those breaks breaks, you really get to, uh, you know, kind of visit with people and, and know their background. And um, um, but I, I came out of that meeting after the second day. And, and even though it went on, it went on in a pretty fast pace it wasn't like everybody was turning to stone or anything it it moved along but I mean still it's two days and you know your rabbits are in the show barn and people are coming in for the convention and you know that kind of thing and so when I got into the show barn I just wanted to hold everybody's hand because I didn't want to have to go back to, <laughs> to be away from the show you know because that's the fun part of, of everything you know and so and then of course you know a Uh, The other thing that um, people don't know that we have a half a day of meetings when they're all checking out on release morning, we have another, you know, anywhere from three to four hour meeting on that day before we can even go home.
1: Yeah, it's it's not a convention for a lot of us is what five days. But if you're serving on the board, it's it's almost a week, right?
2: Correct, yeah. And the year that that I drove out to, um, um, when we, was it 2019? We were in Reno. By the time I got home, I was almost gone two full weeks. Wow. Because of the drive.
1: So, Do you find it is it challenging to show rabbits and also serve the board? I mean, the rabbits have to go under a little bit longer uh, time being on the road there and back, and um, and of course you're you've only got so many hours in a day, and you're a busy lady. Um, have right. you noticed that it's been harder to be a, a breeder and serve the ARBA in your capacity?
2: Well, no, not really, and I'm I'm very very blessed to have some some great. Um, you know, helpers and people that are my support system. And I know that my rabbits are in good hands, that I don't have to worry about them uh, while I'm gone. And and once we're done with the meetings, we're pretty much, you know, you get to do what you, you need to do. I mean, we got the general membership meeting that we need to be at and participate in. But um, once those meetings are over with, then, you know, you can be a regular person. And I use that term loosely unless you're a officer or director in in your breed specialty
1: club. No, you you would never take on, you know, that role, would you? You wouldn't be a president of a national specialty club as well as a director of the ARBA, right? Yeah, who knows? If you're Deb, you are. Yeah, you do that. Crazy stuff. (laughs) Pretty great. Um, What advice would you give to other ARBA members who maybe aren't judges, but who are looking at serving the ARBA and, you know, commitment and dedication is something that you have done since really the beginning. And as I read your bio, secretary, treasurer, that shows up a lot. And that those are not, those are not just uh, stationary jobs. I mean, those are, those are worker jobs. Um, What advice would you give to others about becoming more involved?
2: Um, You've got to stay organized. Um, Sometimes it gets kind of uh, nuts. And so you prioritize what you've got to do and and keep your schedule and um, appreciate your days off or not having anything to do. give yourself some downtime, but it is a commitment. it's a commitment of time um, and it, at times it's even a whole lot of adult babysitting, you know, where the membership sometimes thinks that the ARBA should be in charge of, you know, several things that, you know, we don't have anything. That's not our deal. Um, what goes on at a show needs to be dealt with at a show. Um, if you've got a problem there, you need to deal with it there. Um uh, talk to the secretary or the sh- superintendent of that specific show. Uh, if you don't like the way the show's been ran, then don't go back. You know, you have that choice. And so, um, but um, I, I have a very in-depth file system of emails on my laptop to keep everything kind of organized there. Um, I have a separate email that is just for uh, Arba Board Business. And uh, it helps keep me there um, in, in that way, um, you know, organized. And, you know, shout out to Eric Stewart, who keeps us all kind of corralled and, you know, kind of the ringmaster of keeping all of us, uh, you know, if we've missed a a, a ballot that we haven't haven't got our vote in that day or whatever um, then you know he's he's very good about um, you know keeping us you know together and I'll go back to that first meeting of of you know kind of after I got home and and I had a, a little bit of a uh, kind of a debriefing uh, conversation with with Eric and I just felt so so inadequate because I didn't have thoughts or thought processes like everybody else on the board and he kind of was a little firm with me and he said but you know what you're a different facet of this and you don't have to think like everybody else on this board everybody needs to have their own specific uh, opinion their thought process consider your district and don't feel like you are inadequate, and it and it made me kind of you know straighten up, tune me up a little bit, and um, I I can think from my background experiences, I can you know have opinions. Uh, about the way things are going because they're different in the South than they are in the Northeast or the Northwest kind of thing. So that, that helped me out quite a bit to know that I don't have to be like everybody else and think like everybody else on the board.
1: You got it. Um and what are some of those things that that separate you from your region from other parts of the country? What would you say is different? I mean you've shown all over the country, you've traveled to numerous conventions over the the decades you've been involved. What do you uh, maybe even more appreciate now that's that's different about the south central part of the US compared to everyone else?
2: Well, um hmm. you know, we have some our you know, our used to be prior to RHD Everything was day of show entry, and, um, you know, when I speak to people from, you know, different parts of the country, they just can't even fathom having day of show entry. It's all got to be pre-entry. Now, I've kind of changed my tunes on pre-entry stuff. It's a dream for show secretary, but it, uh, as an exhibitor, I still just dread making entries a week ahead of time and, and getting that done. But uh, most of the South and in this area, we're kind of getting towards, you know, that being okay. And it not being a, uh, um, you know, as much a hassle or a pain in the neck as it used to be, or we used to think it used to be, but um, our shows are laid back. Um, There's, you know, different clubs that have a, a good, um, kind of mindset to be bringing in judges from across the country and uh, get judges flown in. And when you, you know, have judges that uh, are mainstream judges that judge a lot, that judge from one end of the country to the other, they've got a bigger um, view about. The rabbit business across the or rabbit showing business across the country, and people will come to your shows, you know, with that. So, um, we uh we we like to see new faces and in, in different places,
1: yeah, it keeps it interesting. And you've got a, a show coming up, your Tulsa. Um Rabbit Breeders Association is hosting a show in March. You want to give a shout out um, about your local show that in that club that's been um, going for many years. and as you mentioned earlier, Fibber was the former president of of the club. So what's going on in your local club and what's what's to be expected for the upcoming show in March?
2: Well, we are having a double show in Stillwater, Oklahoma uh, for the last. I don't know, dozen or more years. Our show is always last Saturday in March. Um, we have that out uh, at Stillwater, Oklahoma, and um, have a real good group of judges coming in, including yourself. This Is this the first time you'll be judging in Oklahoma?
1: Yeah, it's my first time uh, judging. I've, I've driven across Oklahoma many times. It's one of those states you, <laughs> it's yeah, unavoidable. Um, but no, this is my first time, and very excited to to be there uh, with you and your club members and, and all the exhibitors.
2: Sure. That well, we're looking forward to having you. Uh, this is this show will be our twelfth annual, what we call the Fibber McGee Memorial Show in his honor, and um, the Tulsa RBA Club is. I think this is the ninety fifth year that they have been in. Uh, uh, on the books as far as a charter club with the ARBA, so wow, uh, we're going to be soon knocking on our hundredth anniversary ourselves.
1: That's pretty cool. That's a that's one of the older clubs, I'm sure, in the United States.
2: Yes, yeah, there are a few older, um, but uh, um, it I believe it, 1927 was the uh, on the original charter. Um, wow, you know, and that's something that that used to do when when he was president of the club, which I don't you know, 30 or 40 years, I don't know how long he was president of the Tulsa Club, but uh, when you'd go to a Tulsa RBA meeting, Fibber would sit at the front table and he would have his briefcase open uh, with the back of it facing the, you know, the handful of people that were there, and Fibber would always pull out some kind of historical article or you know something from way back in the day that that would be an interest uh to the club and so uh one one meeting he pulled out the original typed um standard that was prevent presented to the uh, standards committee uh for the palominos when, wow. when they were first starting or he'd pull out a a um you know, a leg from back in the 40s or 50s, whatever, you know, kind of thing or uh, different articles from, you know, way back when. And it it was just, you never knew what kind of treasure he found in his, you know, from his filing cabinet that he had saved and, and put back. So uh, it always made the, uh, the meetings interesting.
1: Yeah. And what an appreciation for the past too. Um Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, your time raising rabbits. And one of those breeds we, we've talked about, you, you raise, of course, Havanas now, but your starting breed were those Palominos. And as your husband said, you chose them because it is the color of his hair. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but they, as you mentioned earlier, they're one of the rarer breeds in our in, in the RBA. They're an American bred, right? They were founded yes. here in the United States. developed um, in the United
2: States, yes.
1: Mm -hmm. And you gave a a judges conference at the National ARBA Judges Conference at the convention uh, once on Palomino's, you know, tell us about about the breed, introduce the breed. We've not talked about them on this podcast. And um, for a lot of us, they are a rare breed. I I don't judge them very often. So, for example, um, so.
2: Right. Yes, uh, that I believe that was in 2006. And I and I think you gave a conference that year too on mini Rex fur.
1: Oh yeah, that's the one where I <laughs> everyone glazed over because I had brought up like standard deviation and some size. I remember that, Bob Shafto's face like this is no place for all this math. And I'm like, <laughs> it's not. I'm just talking about diameter of of, of fur. Oh, sorry. I,
2: I'll never for, I'll never forget it.
1: Well, I, I think everyone there doesn't. But they don't remember what I said. But they remember glazing over and taking a nap. <laughs>
2: (laughs) Well, and and that was kind of the first year, and one of the biggest things I was kind of – afraid of is there was the threaten of the, you know, if you didn't finish within your slotted time, they were going to be dragging you off the stage with one of those shepherd hook deals or something.
1: You that's know? about so, accurate. No, that's true.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I was more worried about staying on the clock. And so anyway, but, but yeah, it, uh, as far as the Palomino's go, uh, because a lot of judges don't see them or get their hands on them a lot. Um, You know, it was always a training process after they got judged to visit with a, you know, a judge about them or the finer points and, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, some it's always a scary feeling that, you know, when a judge has to look at the standard before they judge a breed. But, you know, the standard is there as a tool for them. So um, not not so bad. of of a thing for them to have, but um, it seems like some of the judges would really kind of get hung up on the color. Of, of a Palomino. And, you know, there was a lot of back and forth between, is it too light? Is it too dark? You know, let's call it a medium range here, which I know is not a good word for, you know, anything to be in the standard. But, you know, give them the color points for that. This is still a commercial type rabbit. Let's you know, give it points for color, and then move on, and then let's talk about the important stuff here, which is the the type. And so, um, once you get that type into the mix, and 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 Fibber was one that always say that that you know they're a commercial rabbit with color on them, and so and you know others even said you don't eat the color. Let's talk about the 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 flesh and the type on these. So um, so that's, and they do have a little bit different on their high point than a lot of rabbits, but uh, when when I was breeding them, because there wasn't a whole lot of them, um, you know, you probably would win best to breed, but what you were looking towards was to be able to present a rabbit on the best in show table and have something that was going to be, um, you know, tough enough to to get a look on the uh, for the best in show awards. And so, well,
1: and for a rare breed, they've, they've had quite the presence at ARBA conventions. They've won group, the the Palominas have won a group a few times in recent history.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, and I even think that back in the nineties sometime, it won a youth group. Um, um, but that's been a day or two ago. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, so, and, you know, the, the other thing about the palominos is you really don't cross the two varieties. Um, you know, and what are I those had,
1: two varieties for the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with palominos?
2: One is golden and one is lynx. And so, um, you know, the lynx is considered uh, technically an agouti. Um, and when you cross them with the golden, you're going to have a tendency to have blue undercoat instead of that cream to white color. Um, you can also have um, some eye color problems. And so, um, and then in my latter years, I only had the lynx variety. It seems like it was almost like they were two different breeds. You, The golds were either doing good and the lynx not, or the lynx were doing good and the, the golds weren't. But... Um, the lynx have a a shorter denser fur, a snappier coat and when they're in fur, i mean they're just something special to look at, but if they're not in fur 100%, then you know, don't waste your time. You know, maybe <laughs> the the goldens can get away with maybe being a little unfinished, but the the lynx do not. and so um so we didn't cross, you know, both colors on those. Um, Does
1: one variety win uh, more than the other in in palominos?
2: Usually it's the golden, but it's because you have your your more of your top breeders, your So there's just I don't know if that's in you know some of the other breeds that you know sometimes the type is just not there uh, with the links.
1: And are they there? Did you mention that they were maybe less popular as well, the links, or are they about the same?
2: Well, it's just hard to find you mm-hmm. know uh, uh, good quality stock that would improve what you've got. Uh, that's kind of towards the end of you know when I was breeding them that they. I just couldn't find anything that was going to help improve what I had. And so, um, and I'd also got into a kind of a genetic thing that I had such dense fur that they just would not completely finish. Um, just the thickest coat you've ever seen. And I don't know how I ended up with that, but, you know, the best type rabbits, of course, they're the ones with that have that, that... A super dense fur uh, end up so, um, so it got kind of frustrating that there you know wasn't more of a, a gene pool to uh, help improve that so.
1: And um, on a broader note you know palominos were your first breed they're a rare breed and we find you know these rare breeds are now getting quite a bit of attention thanks to the, the livestock Conservancy and a lot of breeders that brought back breeds that we didn't see. Um, you know heavily, and, and they've done a, an amazing job. What advice would you give to breeders that are aspiring to succeed with a rare breed?
2: I would say you n- need to network and know who's in your area, know who's traveling to what shows, and you know, I think it comes down to any club you've just got to have communication. You know the the membership with the with the officers and um, those that are that are showing and um, you know even to have your national show the the national Palomino show is going to be in Kansas uh, in April and you know that's a nice central part of the country and so um, you've got to talk about these shows before it's time to breed for these shows. So you'll actually have something to show. So, um, you know, if you're not planning, then you're planning to fail and, um, um, you know, start looking months or even a year in advance or more about putting dates on your calendar of when you're going to meet up with the other breeders and iron sharpens iron and you only get better by having that that top quality um available to purchase and or show against.
1: Yeah, I bet you learned a lot just going and competing. I mean, that's the basis between or the base of of livestock judging was to to take your animals to a an event and compare yourself with others and see how your progress is and what you what you need to do to up your game, right?
2: exactly yes
1: and uh, you talked about the breed and how color is oftentimes a a mystery with judges but you brought a great point that the general type is worth more than that so would you agree or would maybe would you advise maybe judges that are struggling with the breed or if they they are flying somewhere and they get palominos and they're they're not used to looking at them to to maybe sort them at on general type first and then go back and fine tune those top placers when it comes to color and fur
2: Yes. Yeah. That, that would be a good way to start. And of course, you know, you've, and I don't think that they have it as much nowadays, but back in the old days, you know, we just had an uphill battle with ear lacing and smut, which is a big fault. Um, Another thing is the, uh, the white shadow bars on the front feet is a, a big fault. Uh, Mealiness on the face. So, you know, you're getting into rabbits that don't have that rich, golden color anymore that, um, you know, that should be faulted also. But when there's only 20, 25 points on color, there's a whole lot of points somewhere else out of that hundred. And I think that should be prioritized.
1: Well, and it's interesting that you brought up the shadow bars because the color description in the standard is pretty um, specific. And I think that maybe that confuses judges when they're studying for their tests that, that they have to get hung up on that as as you just said, those problems maybe aren't as they don't occur nearly as frequently as they as they once did. So while our standard reflects uh, struggles over the over time, would you agree that that those problems maybe shouldn't be as on the forefront of, of, of getting hung up on by judges because they're just not as frequent?
2: C- correct. Um, don't get hung up on them, but realize that they're there, you know, or could be there, you know, in, in the back of your mind uh, that yeah, this kind of thing happens within this breed. So uh, the other thing would be is, you know, goat, when you're at convention or if you get near a spring national, get with a breeder and talk to them. Um, I'm going to kind of jump over into the Havanas and my experience with that of Braising them for, I don't know, four or five years. Just did it locally. We all did well. We, you know, we had good numbers in Oklahoma and the surrounding states. And I ventured off to my very first spring national with Havana's. And the judge at the time I had known for, you know, probably 20 years uh, anyway. And after the show was over with, he got me aside. He said, Deb, you had some of the best rabbits on the table. You did not have correct Havana fur. And I mean, talk about a gut punch. I had never had anybody say that. I had never heard that terminology. And I had never had anybody teach me about correct Havana fur. I thought my fur was spinning. And I never really had anybody talk to me about correct Havana fur. Um, and so for the next five or six years, anytime that I was at a show where I would see some of the top name breeders, I would have a notebook with questions and I wanted to know what was the physiology? Why was this? How come that? And so, um, you know, I was being a sponge, absorbing all of that, uh, to get what the difference was between a finished rabbit and correct Havana Fur.
1: Interesting. And and you realize that once you got out of your local area and and set foot in the, on the national stage, right?
2: Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, I I was doing and winning, you know, as much as I wanted to around my local area. But, you know, I wasn't even close to playing in the sandbox with the big boys.
1: Wow. So I bet you would advise people that are in, in breeds to really travel around and, and go to the, some of those bigger shows, wouldn't you?
2: Yes. Yeah. And and you get, you know, like I said earlier about judges that are traveling across the country that see a broad spectrum of the breeds and stuff and get their opinions. Yeah. I noticed when
1: I traveled to shows in parts, uh, you know, parts of the country that I haven't been before. Uh, say, for example, haul uh, are a good example. I'll, I'll judge in an area and uh, there'll be 75 or 80 and I'll DQ, you know, five or five or 10 for eye spots. And the breeders are like, wait, what the heck is that? And you're like, the, the, no one's ever said that to us before. You know, and these are people that, that show frequently in their areas and the judges um, maybe didn't notice those things. So it's interesting, too, that maybe judges become regional in terms of what they're accustomed to. And sometimes that affects the, those local people. So getting those those judges from out of town can be somewhat beneficial, (laughs) maybe tragic at times too, but for those, for those breeders, but I guess that's when you begin to learn stuff, huh?
2: Yes, indeed. All right. So let's talk about
1: feed because, uh, you know, Fibber was one of your mentors and man, everyone that knew him said he was a master at what he did when it came to, to feeding rabbits. Um, How do you, how do you work with, with, with your feed and um, do you have any advice when it comes to your feed vendors and your feed, um, your feed dealers?
2: Well, um, my n- number one thing uh, is getting fresh feed, um, whatever is local, something that your rabbits will eat. Um, I' I'm, e- I'm even one of them crazy people that that will taste feed. And I was using I don't even remember what brand, but I got to the convention that year, and the feed that I'd brought from home, looked completely different than what was in the bag that the vendor had taken, you know, and, and lay, laid out at the convention. And so um, I went on about a year study about, you know, what other feeds were available.
1: And um, what, did, what were you looking for when you did that, when you looked at other feeds?
2: Well, I, I wanted something that tastes like alpha and that, you know, of course, didn't have a whole lot of dust, and so we had uh, pen pals had come into the area then, and I started using uh, pen pals from from ADM, and um, our club actually, the Tulsa RBA, actually started buying in bulk from them for a period of maybe a year, year and a half. There were enough of us uh, in the club that, that could purchase that at a, you know, a a better rate than getting it at feed store. But, um, but it was the freshest feed available. It had a nice fiber content in it. Um, it, it didn't have a, a high, high protein that I believe would burn up, you know, our specialized Havana coats. And so, Um, I think I've probably been using that probably for maybe 15 years or more. And um, we. the other thing, because we were so closely related or with involved in buying that feed, we got to become very good friends with the feed dealers, the feed reps in our area. And so, therefore, anytime any of us did very well at a show... Um, we let the feed company know that part of that, you know, part of it is husbandry, part of it's genetics, and part of it is your quality of brand feed that you're using and uh, at whatever cost that that is. But um, so we would let the feed dealers know that we love their product um, and that, you know, uh, we weren't calling to complain. We weren't com- calling because of the price or, or whatever on that. But, and because of that open book between us, then they have, uh, you know, contacted. I've been involved in in a couple feed studies with them, and uh, they always want to know kind of what is going on in in the you know within the rabbit world.
1: That's kind of a reverse from how a lot of us deal with our rabbit feed dealers, because we only contact them when there's a problem and, and we complain and you've, you've done the opposite and, and it's really benefited.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. And, and they also have been a support to our club, uh, for our best in show awards, uh, for the last, uh, 10 or 12 years. And, um, and so, you know, as we reflect on their support, they want to be involved with rabbit breeders and what's best for the rabbit breeders. Um, you know, if they, if they want to show interest in rabbits, I want to welcome them, you know, because we're not the biggest fish in the pond. Um, we've, we have to have a product that helps promote what we're doing.
1: Right, and if if they have a negative take on us, then they're probably not going to want to deal with rabbit people and make it better. Exactly. They just don't yeah. want to deal with us at all. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great that's a great bit of advice for for breeders across the country to have a good relationship and and to talk about when it's when it is good, you know, and not sure. just sure. And I mean, when it's, when it's they up.
2: weren't, uh, you know, if there was a bag of feed that had, you know, extra long. Pa- pellets in it, or it was extra du- dusty or whatever, they wouldn't even, you know, hesitate to say, take the feed back and get a new bag. We'll reimburse you for it. So, um, you know, so they want to hear the good and the bad. They just don't want to hear the the complaining. you know, all the time. <laughs> you, what is that? You you catch more flies with honey than the vinegar. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Exactly, and oftentimes those those stagnant times when they're not hearing from us, the feed's doing a great job. So right. maybe stop and, and actually point that out to them, so they so they have a template because they're not rabbit breeders more, more than likely. So right. when it's good, they should know. Hey, this is what it's supposed to look like.
2: Yes, yeah they they want to know, they want to learn, they you know they want to know how, uh, you know what our feeding habits are and how we, you know, use the feed. And, you know, sometimes they, it's not exactly what they've, you know, learned from some of the larger species.
1: Right. We are, we are totally different in that regard. Exactly. So let's talk about FFA. I was reading your campaign profile from the time that you ran for the District 4 Director, and you mentioned that you were a former FFA member. And uh, it doesn't sound like you did rabbits in FFA, but rabbits are a growing species when it comes to projects in FFA. So what are some of the benefits that rabbit projects do for kids that are involved in FFA? And, and why might kids choose rabbits over, uh, say, a, a, a show steer or a market lamb?
2: Well, number one is the, the initial cost um, and the cost of feed and how much you have to feed them. Um, rabbits are so much of a, a quicker, uh, you know, by time they're ready to show and have babies and, um, you know, it goes so much faster than, than anything else. But, um, You know, the equipment is not that expensive. Um, I was just visiting with an FFA member and 4-H member the other day that, uh, you know, they were talking about having one rabbit last year, and now they've got 16 coops or something and buying more. And, but the resale value on any of that kind of equipment, if you take care of it, it's got a a high value to it. It's, It's easily sold. And you know, get most of your money back as far as that goes if your kids decide not to have it. But, um, you know, the inner city kids can have them. Um, rabbits, uh, they don't take up a whole lot of space, uh, rabbits don't make a whole lot of noise, or you know, they don't smell like pigs or that kind of thing. Um, so you can, you know, that part of it um but i would say the biggest thing is the initial investment uh in that and there's so much variety of of rabbits that kids can choose and and uh you know be part of so
1: and that's a good um, point. As a, as a leader in an FFA, you know, a former member yourself, um, and we, as you said, we have a lot of breeds, a lot of variety. What breeds would you recommend to FFA projects or advisors to programs that maybe they didn't come from a rabbit background, but they're learning about rabbits? Are there certain breeds that, that work better in FFA projects?
2: Well, I mean, it would depend on if you know the meat pen business is way big down in Texas. Uh, we don't have that here in Oklahoma, so it's going to be a breeding rabbit. But you know, for for kids that are just going to have breeding rabbits, I I suggest those that have uh, rabbits that that stay smaller longer, that you know maybe have more of a a pet personality. You know that they want interaction. Uh, with their owners and that kind of thing Um, you know some breeds are more prone to that than others
1: yeah definitely what advice would you give to FFA advisors and and teachers Um, because we see a lot throughout the country that these uh, advisors and teachers that they have great intentions but they may only come from a large animal background and they don't have experience in rabbits but they've got kids that are interested in rabbits so what advice would you give to advisors on on where to go for good information and to to learn more
2: well, uh, the ARBA or somebody that is in the uh, local area that does have rabbits uh, can explain to them um, about, you know, the other qualities of, you know, other than just owning an animal. But, you know, they learn the responsibility no matter what the, the you know, size of the ra- uh, rabbit or livestock is. Um I am part of the uh, Tulsa County 4-H and over the rabbit deal at the county shows. And at Tulsa County, everyone gets to do showmanship. Sometimes they don't like that. But <laughs> for, for me, it's a part of kids learning how to promote their project, learning how to talk to adults uh, learning that adults don't eat 4-H kids for lunch, you know. <laughs> and you kind of see the kids bloom in their responsibilities as, you know, then coming in and how their confidence grows, um, you know, by just leaps and bounds from one show to the next when they have to be involved. And it's more than just putting your rabbit on the table. Um, but interacting with other people, um, presenting, you know, those are life skills. Those are one day you're going to have to interview for a job. Um, I remember many years ago, I was was helping out at one of the conventions in the youth department uh, when they were doing callback interviews. And myself and two other ladies were over the um, the the oldest age of boys. And they gave us a sheet of questions that we could potentially, you know, ask them. And uh, the, the top five or six in that group, before they even sat down at the table, when they presented themselves, they had answered every one of them questions on their own that was on our potential question sheet. I mean, it was like they were... Applying for a job at Microsoft or something. I was so impressed with those those kids, you know. So then we just have to pull some kind of crazy question out of the out of <laughs> out of our hat, you know, to ask them. But these boys were prepared. Um, they were very professional. Looked you in the eye, shook your hand, introduced themselves, uh, gave a short you know, kind of bio of themselves and what they were doing and what they plan to do in the future. I mean, very, very impressive.
1: And that's different than than large animal kids. Showmanship is a different uh, different animal. Let's let's call it that. Is it not?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to really you might get a an occasional question from a judge, but it's between you and him. It's not where everybody gets to hear the, you know, what's going on.
1: Yeah, it makes us very unique. And those kids, as you said, they know their stuff. And as you said, it was it wasn't a challenge for the kids in the contest that you were judging. It became a challenge of the judges to come up with oh, yeah, questions. Oh yeah,
2: definitely. Yes. Yeah.
1: That's such a nod to the the strength of our youth programs in the ARBA. It's 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 wonderful. Yes. Um so I've kept you a long time. I've got a couple more questions for you. What would you consider uh would be your proudest accomplishment in rabbits in the ARBA and you're almost forty years doing this?
2: Oh gosh. Well <clears throat> One of those would be achieving the Supreme Master Breeder certificate. Um, the other, and just you know, I'm still just overwhelmed. And and they they pulled off a fast one whenever they surprised me with the President's Award of Excellence.
1: Well, it was very well deserved.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
1: So what's next for Deb Morrison after you finish your term as district four director? uh, What, what other goals do you have for your time in rabbits?
2: Wow. Um, Maybe taking a vacation. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Maybe letting somebody, you know, step up that has a lot of new and fresh ideas in many areas of what I do in the rabbit world, uh, that they can see, you know, that it's not just something that's an easy task, uh, whether it's fun or or not. Um, You know, there's commitment, there's time and energy, you know, involved at the same time. And so... um, you know, they'll get get a little taste of, you know, behind the scenes and uh, what's going on. Um, I still do have a couple of undated registrar applications hanging on my bulletin board in my office.
1: Mm-hmm. I know about those. <laughs> I think my signature's on one of them. Yeah. Yeah. OK, that's I, a good goal for Deb.
2: Which makes me wonder how many of those people are still going to be members by time <laughs> I get that ready to send in.
1: <laughs> oh, it won't be hard to get 20 more. You know that. Okay. Eric will send you another pink copy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Deb, one last question. It's been a pleasure to speak with you uh, on this podcast episode. And it's something that we ask uh, all of our guests. If you could describe your perfect rabbit show. Hypothetically, whether it's happened, maybe it's maybe you've had one of those or if you could just think about what it would be like, what would that day be like for Deb Morrison?
2: Well, and I'm not sure that that exists, um, but I'll tell you some things I really appreciate about a rabbit show is uh, one of them is beautiful weather, you know, 60 to 70 degrees um Maybe driving to the show is five hours or less, and it's kind of a bonus drive if I get to stop at a Bucky's down in Texas. Um, a very organized show secretaries. My hat's off to them and bless their hearts. That's an, a, a thankless job. I really, really appreciate a show superintendent with the math- mentality of a master chess player. And, and one who operates with military precision. Um, I like a show barn with solid floors and adequate room temperatures, uh, plenty of room and proper sound system, um, show tables that have the lids on them that aren't the open top kind. And the best and favorite is great traveling buddies and rabbit friends and seeing rabbit family.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. And man, spoken like a true rabbit exhibitor, veteran and secretary veteran. Thank you. You've done it all. Well, we'd like to remind everyone about your show. You'd mentioned it earlier, but I'm going to give another plug for it. That's March 26th in Stillwater, Oklahoma. That's the Tulsa Rabbit Breeders Association celebrating, you said, the 95th year uh, that this club was chartered with the ARBA and honoring, of course, the legendary... Fibber McGee, So I uh, hope to see everyone there. I'll be there judging. I can't wait to see everyone in Oklahoma and all my Okie friends. That's, a, that's a, something you call yourselves, isn't it?
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Deb, thank you for joining us on this podcast. And thank you for everything you've done over, over the last almost 40 years. You are a force and an energy and always someone I'd love to bump into at the big shows and give a big hug to and catch up with.
0: Always good to see you too, Alex. Alan, that was a great interview with Deb. I'm, I'm sure you can guess one of my favorite parts was when she was talking about fiber. I think, like me, she was one of those people that was just absolutely fortunate to begin the rabbit hobby around some of the legends and to learn from them. And I know that it makes a big impact on a new breeder to have the attention and the assistance of someone that that's, that's that legendary in the hobby. So I want to go back to something we touched about a little bit in the intro, which was the new breeds that came in in 1988. One of those was the American Fuzzy Lop. That breed um, kind of kicked started a new rule in the standard about new breeds needing to be more than just an existing breed with an altered ear carriage or coat structure. That's actually something that's starting to come up a little bit. And I want to talk about that Um, in the general statements and policies on the portion about admitting new breeds, groups, and varieties in the ARBA standard, a proposed new breed group or variety must possess qualifications of individual merit unique to itself, identifying it as a separate and distinct breed group or variety. These animals shall not be a breed group or variety already recognized in the SOP with only a change coat structure or an altered ear carriage. For a long time, there has been kind of an assumption that there was a rule requiring two changes between a current breed and a proposed new breed? Yes and no. That's never been really been a rule in the books. There nowhere has it been written that two changes are required. However, if one of the changes you have the new breed or variety is ear carriage or coat structure, then yes, you do need something else of some sort. Recently, um, I've received some emails from people asking if we can evaluate proposed standards for new breeds. And I've declined to do that. And I will tell you why. It's not because we don't want to help our membership. It's not that we don't want to advise them. But the way the Standards Committee works, I don't make those decisions. Um, I can't look at your standard and tell you, yes, this is enough. No, this is not enough. Because everything we do is a committee decision. So for us to consider those standards, we all have to look at them, we discuss them, we vote on them. And it comes to the point that we just we can't do that for anything that anyone's proposed. You know, if we take one proposed standard without a COD, go through that process, give that feedback, we're then obligated to do it for any iteration coming forward or any project at all. So while I do encourage people who are working to develop new breeds to go out and get some feedback, um, please understand that the official answer is only going to come with that filing of a COD. I would, you know, again encourage you to go talk to as many people as you can. Talk to breeders you're interested in working with, talk to people who have been through this project, uh, talk to judges, but, but again, please understand that the only way that we can give you that official word is through that COD process. With and we that, don't want
1: to squelch the the interest. I mean, like you said, new breeds and varieties we've said over and over on this podcast, they are interesting and they do add value to what we do in our, our industry and our association.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, It's more of just kind of a workflow issue. You know, the committee is busy with a lot of things. And like I said, if we do it once, then we're kind of obligated to do it for everyone. We're kind of obligated to go through various iterations and sometimes, you know, put ourselves in kind of a bad position, especially if there are competing interests looking at recognizing something that's the same or very similar, Um, to be real honest, when I hear about some of this stuff. A lot of times I just stick my head in the sand until I'm, you know, formally presented with it because it's just easier that way.
1: Yep. And that's that's why those pathways exist.
0: Indeed it is.
1: All right, well, we want to remind everyone again to like and follow The Rabbit Tree on Facebook that will continue to serve as our hub. And you can find us at Apple, Audible, Spotify, and Google for current and past episodes. And this being season two, we've got loads coming and lots of great interviews with some of the, the biggest names across our industry from really around the world. And don't forget to drop those comments and your five star ratings, or you can always email us too at podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. And one last reminder and a thank you to KW Cages for sponsoring this podcast episode. Don't forget to use the promo code therabbitry at kwcages.com for some savings on your next order.
0: And as always, we would like to end this episode with a quote. This one to me kind of embodied what Fiber was to the ARBA and I like it. A hero. You want to be one of those rare human beings who makes history, rather than merely watching it flow around them like water around a rock. That's by Dan Simmons.
1: I love it. And this is one more reminder, everyone, as we conclude every episode, keep talking rabbits and keep talking cavies.
2: While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association... It does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.